Thank you. Wow, that that was fantastic. Uh, People need the Lord. Why? (laughs) Why do people need the Lord? I mean, this has been a challenging week. I mean, I I don't know what's going on in your life, but uh, the life of our country obviously has been very challenging. A lot of division, a lot of pain, a lot of tragedy uh, has been on the news. Um, A lot of of things have been going on just around the the world. And... um, you, you, you hear that song, People Need the Lord, and you think of the Gospels, and you think, well, what were the Gospel writers trying to tell us about the Lord? Why, why is the Lord so significant? Why is Jesus so instrumental in helping us in our situation? Uh, you know, who is He? And why should we follow Him? Why do we need Him? I mean, that's what we've been trying to walk through as we've been looking at the Gospels. And so we want to, I want to continue that journey this morning, and we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, I'm going to use Mark as a guide. You know, we're, we're, we're going to use all the Gospels. There's four of them. Uh, we're going to use all the Gospels, but I'm going to use certain ones to guide us on this road trip uh, of trying to answer the question, who is Jesus and why should we follow him? And so we're going to look at Mark chapters 1, 2, and 3. So we're going to make some, uh, some, some headway here, and we're going to move kind of quickly through all these passages. So, but you need to have your Bible open because we're going to look at a lot of Scripture. But it's important that we make these moves uh, to help us understand who Jesus is, why we need Him, uh, why should we follow Him. So as you're finding the book of Mark uh, and turning there, I want to ask you this question. You know, are you familiar with uh, those if-then statements? You know, if-then. You know, an if-then statement is a conditional statement. It starts with a hypothesis and then ends with a conclusion. And so let me give you some examples of if-then statements. Uh, if it doesn't rain today, I will wash my car. So if it doesn't rain, then I will wash my car. Or if it does rain today, then I will stay home and watch a movie. You know? Or let me give you one of those if-then statements for those of you who are more math-minded. If 2 divides evenly into x, then x is an even number. If then, you know, you get the conditional statement. I'll let you think on that one for a little while uh, if you're not math minded. But uh, this morning, what I want to do is I want to give you several of these if then statements from the Gospel of Mark. And they're actually not going to be statements that I'm going to present to you. They're going to be more like if then questions. Okay, so kind of a combination of statement slash questions. And all these if then questions are really about Jesus. And, you know, so far what we've looked at is we've looked at the birth of Jesus. We've looked at the childhood of Jesus. We looked at his baptism. And then we've also looked at uh, the the temptation he experienced in the wilderness for 40 days. And now we're going to consider what he does next. Like, what does Jesus do once he is baptized? He goes into the wilderness. He shows himself as he is the Son of God. He is uh, the faithful representative of humanity, unlike uh, his his forefather Adam, he's the great second Adam, uh, and he is doing something unique. And so what does he do after that time of temptation? Well, let's look at verse 14, verses 14 and 15. It says, now after John was arrested, and we'll talk more about that later on as far as why John was arrested, but John the Baptist was arrested, and Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So this is Jesus' first sermon. Uh, Jesus' first sermon is that the kingdom of God is at hand. 
or has come near. And so the idea is something new is happening. A new age is dawning. A new administration is being put in place, so to speak. Something new is happening. And it's an age where God will reign over his people in a way that he has not done in the past. I mean, this is going to be this unique new era that Jesus is proclaiming. And this, this era is not just out of the blue. It's actually been promised throughout the Old Testament scriptures, which is why Jesus says the time has been fulfilled or the time has come. In other words, all this has been leading up to this. And then Jesus tells you what this is. It's the kingdom of God. It's at hand. And so here's the if-then question. If the time has been fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, then who is this Jesus? You know, what is his role in this whole new era? You know, is he uh, a prophet? Is he some type of messenger? Because, you know, there are several people that claim to be messengers from God, right? I mean, I sat next to one a few years ago at a park. And uh, turns out I think he was crazy. But, you know, so what about Jesus? I mean, he claims to be this person who's bringing in the new age, this, this kingdom of God. And so that's a pretty bold statement. Well, let's keep reading. Uh, let's skip down to verse 21. We're going to come back to the calling of the disciples later at another time. But let's look at 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and they were astonished. And I want you to just take note of these words that Mark uses. Uh, they're astonished. They're amazed. Look at the crowd's response. He's putting it in there for a reason, because this, isn't, this doesn't happen every day. He's showing you this. Something is new here. Something is unique with Jesus. And so the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. You see the scribes and the teachers, much like the teachers today, like even myself, you know, the way you give credibility to your teaching is you quote the experts, right? You, you look at whoever's an expert in that field and you quote them or you quote former teachers that were very wise and gifted in teaching. And that's what the scribes would do. They would, they would quote former rabbis and whatnot, former teachers. Uh, but Jesus was teaching differently. He said, they said, Jesus is teaching like one who has authority. And so whereas we would teach and we would quote the experts, Jesus is the expert. And so they say, this is interesting. This is unique. Astonishing. He is teaching unlike anyone we've ever seen. One who has authority. And so if Jesus taught with this unique authority... I mean, is he just a messenger from God? Uh, or is he a prophet from God? Who is he? And why should we follow him? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 23. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, who you are the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent. And come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So now we have Jesus not only teaching with authority... But even at the sound of his voice, he can use his voice 
to command unclean spirits to leave a person's life. And so not only is he teaching with authority, he is demonstrating his authority in his teaching, in his uh, call to this unclean spirit to come out. Uh, You know, here's the thing. We've all known people who have claimed to have authority, right? Who have claimed to be able to do this or that. I remember one time at uh, my wife's family's home back when I was in maybe high school, uh, my wife's younger brother, who was in middle school at the time, uh, claimed to be able to beat me in basketball. <laughs> you know, I'm in high school. I'm maybe 6'3", six, 6'4", six, fairly thin fella. But he was maybe all of like 5'5", five, five, maybe, on his tiptoes. And so he's claiming to be able to beat me. And needless to say, uh, his claim and what actually took place did not quite align. You know, we've all known people that were able to claim things, but things just weren't quite true that they were claiming. They weren't able to do what they claimed to do. But Jesus not only teaches with authority about the kingdom, but demonstrates authority by casting out this unclean spirit. So if Jesus has authority over unclean spirits, then... What kind of person is he? Where did he get this authority from? You know, the fact that people were amazed and astonished, like I mentioned earlier, tells you this doesn't happen just every day. People aren't just coming out the street, casting out unclean spirits and doing things like Jesus did. This was something unique. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever And immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So again, we say, okay, Jesus' authority is now extending beyond just teaching, but now he's able to uh, demonstrate authority over unclean spirits. And not only that now, he's able to demonstrate authority over physical illness. And obviously the news is spreading about him and people are bringing, you know, everybody that has an ailment, they're bringing to Jesus. And Jesus is continually demonstrating this authority that he has. So his authority is unique. It's something that hasn't happened before. This is something very, very unique, and the people know it. Now let's skip down to verse 40. It says, And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. Now notice, Jesus touches the leper. You know, it would be worse than you touching somebody with COVID. You know, it's like, you don't want to be around people with COVID. Uh, you don't want to get the disease. And so, but what's the issue, the issue here with leprosy is that if you were to touch someone with leprosy, it would make you unclean. And to be unclean means that you cannot participate in temple worship. You can't go to the temple to worship. Okay, so it'd be like you could not, well, it's kind of true. If you get COVID, you can't come here. You know, this kind of thing. You're unclean. You can't come. Quarantine. But that's kind of what happens. Leprosy, you're un, you touch somebody with leprosy, you're unclean. You can't participate in temple worship. 
but what's interesting about Jesus is <laughs> Jesus touches the leper, but the leper doesn't make him unclean. He makes the leper clean. And so people are recognizing this is different. This, Jesus is unique, unlike anyone else. Because anyone else would, would have been made unclean. But Jesus is not made unclean. He makes the leper clean. And so if this Jesus is able to make the unclean clean, then where does he get this ability? Where does he get this authority? Who is he? Well, let's keep reading down in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes are sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And this is a great point. And they are right. You know, the only one who can extend forgiveness is the one that has been wronged. You know, for example, let's, let's say you know, I make a comment about Georgia Tech that Clay doesn't like, and he punches me in the face. And Richard sees the whole thing happen. And Richard thinks, you know, I just was ordained as a deacon, you know. What should I do? You know what, I'm going to go tell Clay that I forgive him for punching Ron in the face. Well, that's fine, and that's real nice of Richard to do that, uh, but that's not how it works. You know, Clay can't punch me in the face and have Richard forgive him for it. I have to forgive him because he punched me in the face. I may have deserved it, so that's another story, but if he wronged me, the only way that forgiveness can be extended is that the one wronged extends the forgiveness, right? That's how forgiveness works. And so the scribes are absolutely right when they say, who can forgive sin but God alone? Because that's what sin is. Sin is wronging God. That's what sin is. And so let's pick it back up in verse 8. It says, and immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Well, you may say to yourself, well, both are pretty easy to say, but are hard to accomplish, right? In fact, I could pay, I, I may could tell someone their sins are forgiven, because how could you prove they're not? But if I were to tell someone, a paralyzed person, take up your bed and walk, you're going to find out real quick if I have authority to do that or not, right? So look at verse 10. But, they may, but that they may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Notice the crowd's response again. They were amazed, and notice what they did. They glorified God. Why? Because they knew forgiveness of sin and healing and restoration comes from God. They recognized this was the work of God. They knew they were acts of God. 
And they were amazed to see this demonstration of that type of authority that day. So let's consider this if-then statement in question. Okay, if sin is wronging God, and God is the, one, is the only one who can forgive sin, and if Jesus forgives sin, then what does that tell us about Jesus? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 13. And he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowds coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as they passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him, and the scribes of the Pharisees, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So here we see Jesus not only forgives sinners, but he eats and drinks with sinners as well. And so now this controversy is brewing. You know, it's, becoming, it's coming more to a head, you know, especially with the religious leaders and who Jesus is and what he's doing and what he's teaching. And the controversy is really between what was, what is, and what will be. And this is why in verse 18 we read this. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the, and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Did you know that? Supposedly that's the case. I've never tried that. If he does, here's what happens. The patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and the wor a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Again, I'm taking Jesus' word for it here. Never tried this either, but I'm assuming this is the case. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Here's the point. The Pharisees were stuck in what was. And Jesus is bringing about what is and what will be. He's bringing in the new wine, the new cloth, the new era, this new movement of God, this fulfillment of Old Testament promise. And the Pharisees are so stuck in what was, they fail to move forward with Him. And this creates friction. This creates controversy. And Jesus says, you know, this is why they don't fast when the bridegroom is present. We know this. The wedding, what does the wedding do? The wedding serves as a transition. Two people are single. You have the wedding day and they become one. It's a transition to a new stage. And Jesus says, we're in the midst of the transition now. That's why the disciples are not fasting because the bridegroom's here. But this new stage is coming. New wine in new wineskin. It's not just a retweaking of the old. You know, Jesus isn't just trying to help them find to the Old Testament law and properly understand this is how you obey it. No, He's coming to fulfill the law. Not just extend the law and keep doing what you've been doing, but rather He's going to fulfill the law, bringing in the kingdom of God, this new era, this new administration, so to speak. Now let's consider just one more section 
which is found at the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of 3. Verse 23, One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and they made their way. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? You know, you know, Sabbath, you weren't supposed to work. You weren't supposed to harvest crops. I mean, they're going through and just picking off some grain with their fingers. I mean, I wouldn't call that a harvest. Uh, it's kind of like what the poor would do. You know, you would leave some of the, uh, you know, your harvest on the edges of your field and they could come and gather up what's left. And that's kind of what they're doing. They're kind of walking along. So it's kind of like if you're walking alongside the woods and you see some blackberries on the side there. You just go pick a few off. It's not like you're harvesting a blackberry crop. It's just you're grabbing some to eat because you're hungry. And that's kind of what was happening there. But the, but the Pharisees said, hey, you're doing what's not lawful. And so he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Statement number one. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. So they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, Come here. And he said to him, said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good? or to do harm, to save life, or to kill. And they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So you have two Sabbath day events. One is plucking grain. The second is healing a man with a withered hand. Now, like I said, the Sabbath was a day you were not supposed to work. You were supposed to rest as it's laid out in the Ten Commandments. Uh, and in both events, the Pharisees accused Jesus of breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus makes two statements. The first is that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Lord, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And the second statement is, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? The first statement, Jesus very closely links himself with God. <laughs> because Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, I am the master of the Sabbath. In other words, I say what you can do on the Sabbath. <laughs> so the Pharisees were like, okay, this is, uh, this is unique. Something's going on here. This guy is uh, something, somebody we've never seen before. These statements are really out there. And then the second statement, Jesus emphasizes that good ought to be done even on the Sabbath. And so these two events push the religious, religious leaders to a point of decision. And they push you too. And they push me to a point of decision. You know, who is Jesus? You know, will, will they, will we reject his teaching or submit to his teaching? Uh, will we turn our backs on him or will we follow him? You know, will we reject him or will we believe in him? Will we keep clinging to the old ways or will we embrace the new? And the gospel writers, that's what they're doing is pushing us to this point of decision. What will you say about him? What will you believe about him? 
Will you follow him? Will you reject him? They're forcing us to deal with these if-then questions. If Jesus has authority, will we submit to that authority? If Jesus forgives sin, will I repent from my sin and turn to him for forgiveness? If Jesus ushered in the kingdom of God, will I enter the kingdom by faith in Jesus? Or will I not? And these are just some of the questions you know, the gospel writers are forcing us to wrestle with. So my question to you this morning so far is, you know, what have you decided? What have you decided about Jesus? What have you decided about following Jesus? Jesus says to you, just like he said in Matthew 1, the time is fulfilled. <laughs> I mean, this is it. This is what's happening. I mean, this is God's ultimate plan. The kingdom of God that has been ushered in by Jesus. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. How should you respond? How should I respond? Repent. Repent and believe in the gospel. Submit to the teachings of Christ. Believe who He is and follow Him. Now next week, we're going to move into a section of the gospels where Jesus unpacks what that looks like. Okay, if you've entered the kingdom, how do you live out the kingdom in the world until the kingdom fully comes? How does that work out? And that's what we're going to look at, look at next week. But in the meantime, I want you to wrestle with these if-then statements. If these things are true about Jesus, who do you say He is? And will you follow Him? Let us pray. Father, thank you for the Gospels. Thank you that they are very clear and direct uh, to show us who Jesus is, what He has done, and what He has ushered in. Lord, help us, Lord, to gain a better understanding and a more accurate picture of Your Son. Help us to have a fuller understanding of the Kingdom of God and what that looks like even today to live that out. And to represent your kingdom to the world. But Lord, I pray this morning for each of us that you would help us to believe. Help us to have faith in who Jesus is. And follow him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.